the name's film. Remember the film. And we have a license to podcast. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast where this week, as you might have guessed, we're going to have a discussion about uh, James Bond. Um, we're going to talk a bit about uh, the James Bond series in general, and then we'll get into the, our film to remember this week, which we said was going to be licensed to kill, but then we decided because of how it sort of has some thematic ties to uh, No Time to Die, it just came out this week, uh, we decided to do On Her Majesty's Secret Service instead. Um before we get into that, I'm Hugo, and joining me this week is my usual co-host, Jeff Grizzolrick. Hello! And Josh isn't with us this week, because he was busy, and so we have friend of the show and returning guest, Matt Curran. How are you doing, Matt? Hello. Hello. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> that, sure. Sure. <laughs> that, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Was that Sean Connery? <laughs> it was trying to be. It was, it was Connery-esque. Sure not. I mean, that's about it, so, like, it... It was it was recognizable, so yeah. we, we got it. Um, yeah. So uh, so yeah, this week uh, no time to die came out, so we decided to do a Bond episode. Uh, seemed like a good uh, occasion uh, for that. So before we get into our film to remember, we'll talk a bit about James Bond and the 007 series in general. So um, we're just gonna go into uh, for each of us what when did we find out about James Bond? What's our history with the series? How how many have we seen? Uh, you know, uh, what's our relationship to it? Are we fans? Are we not fans? That kind of stuff. So, uh, Matt, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, so my history and relationship with Bond. So it's funny. I told Jeff, uh, you know, last time when I was on the podcast, we were talking about Lawrence of Arabia. And I did a lot of preparation in in uh, anticipation of that episode. Mm. And uh, whenever I, you know, was uh, getting on or getting ready for this episode, I told Jeff yesterday I feel like I've been preparing for this episode my entire life. <laughs> I've I've been a Bond fan basically since I was like seven or eight years old, um, which happened to be right around the time that Nintendo 64 came out, which of course meant that's when GoldenEye, the video game, came out. Of and, course. Uh, that was really my biggest entry into James Bond. Um, my I got to be such a big fan so quickly, my mom actually bought me a... Uh, CD of all of the James Bond theme songs on it. And it was like the 20, at that time it was the 25th anniversary. So it was made in like, I don't know, 87 or 88. Mm -hmm. And um, so I listened to that. I mean, I wore that CD out into the ground, basically. Like, <laughs> you know, if it, if it were a record, it would have had scratches all the heck over that thing, right? Um, and then, you know, I was, it's funny. I was thinking about this yesterday too. Jeff will remember this, at least in the States. We had... Um, we had in the states a lot of times in the past. I think when video stores and video rental stores were such a huge uh, thing. I mean, you know, look at Shit's Creek, right? That's their whole thing is that Johnny Rose, uh, you know, was the owner of a video store chain. But the reason I bring this up is because in they even had like video rental operations within grocery stores at in right, the U.S. Yeah. And uh, so I used to go into the video rental area of our grocery store whenever my mom would take me grocery shopping. And like every single time I was looking for a new James Bond movie. So I had seen the ma vast majority of the Bond movies like, by like the age of 11. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it was crazy. Anyway, that's my that's my history and relationship with it. I, uh, as of this week, have seen every Bond movie <laughs> except for mm. uh, the Casino Royale uh, the, the farcical, yeah, the, nonsensical, right. garbage Casino Royale. I, so that's the only Did one I haven't have... seen. But I was not a diehard fan from childhood like Matt. Although I would say 
my interest in Bond started at the same time when GoldenEye 64 came out, because uh, obviously Matt and I are childhood friends, and we, you know, played those games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, was, I was watching a few of the Pierce Brosnan ones as they were coming out, and then uh, it wasn't until, like, last year that I decided to go back and I should watch all of the Connery ones and all the, you know, I started work, working my way through them. Um, I had seen a lot of them on TV before, but it was always like, you know, I see a jump in halfway through and don't really know the plot. And then it turns out on a lot of these rewatches, it's like, oh, I, I was never going to know the plot because <laughs> some, some of the plots are so convoluted <laughs> that there's no way you're going to know, even even if you've seen it before. But yeah, I, 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 I enjoy the Bond franchise. Uh, when I was watching these movies this week, I, I think I told Matt uh, last night that I think I... I like the franchise. I don't love the franchise. And mm. uh, so I, I'm not going to pretend to be a maniac about it, but I ha- do have strong opinions. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'll have so, something else to say about that in a second, too. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, uh, I I think I've I've seen more Bond movies than I remember because um, I, I definitely remember seeing the 16. There's 16 movies that I definitely remember seeing because some of them I saw them this week. And some of them I, I just had seen a bunch when I was a kid. And I think the Brosnan movies were the ones that I saw first. But then, like, now, this week, I I, re- I watched a bunch of... Like, I watched a few... I think I watched three of the Sean Connery ones. I watched two of... One of the Roger Moore ones. And, and even the Living Daylights. And watching them, I always realized, oh, yeah, no, I've seen this before. So I've definitely seen a bunch of them as a very young kid on TV. But because it's been so long, I don't... I, don't i didn't really remember them completely um but yeah as a kid i think i i was i enjoyed the brosnan movies like even the ones that are that now i recognize are pretty terrible like i remember die another day was like oh this this movie's fun he's surfing on on fucking <laughs> wave, waves and stuff like that's, that's that's likely that happens um but yeah uh <laughs> that's possible uh, but yeah and then i think where i really became a fan of 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 the idea of Bond at least was with uh, when Casino Royale released I was 10 years old um, maybe that movie wasn't completely appropriate for a 10 year old but my dad took me to see it at the cinema anyway because he take he took me to see every movie um, and so like from then on I feel like I've been a fan and maybe I feel like I think I think I consider myself a fan um, even like even if the movies like when I judge the individual movies I find a lot of flaws with a lot of them but the promise and the idea of the Bond movies is never not interesting to me. Like I, I would still watch any of them in a heartbeat because like there's something about it that is just a fun concept. Like I think it, it, it got me into spy movies as a kid and then it it's still, even if there are other spy franchises <clears throat> that maybe overall are more consistently good, like Mission Impossible or, or even the Bond trilogy, that, sorry, the, the Jason Bourne trilogy, um, there's something about Bond that that still has a, a, a special vibe to it's it that the OG. don't have. <laughs> yeah, and I, maybe it's just because it came before. Maybe it's just like there's so many iconic things about the Bond movies that maybe even Mission Impossible doesn't really have, um, and, and so they, they they sort of stick with you in that sense uh, in the same way. Yeah, so expanding on that, what are, what are some things that we like and dislike maybe about the series? Like so. For me, as I said, the what I do really like is how they've managed to create <clears throat> iconic things that even like p- even if you're tangentially 
interested in movies, you you recognize the elements that are very much James Bond 007 things. Um, and and I think it, the best movies in the series use that formula to either comment on it or just perfect that formula to an extent that, that they are really, really, really good movies. Um, what In terms of, of, of dislikes, again, I think a lot of the old movies are, I think, extremely iconic, uh, but when you go back to them with sort of a 2021 eye, they, they can feel a bit episodic, like where there's a main plot, but then midway through a bunch of different things happen and then goons show up because oh at this point we need an action scene and they kind of feel a bit episodic in that way but so i, I think overall there's movies like episodic within are, each movie you mean yeah within each movie they feel quite episodic to me um but uh, having said that i still like find enjoyment in all of them like even the ones that i'm like oh this movie is like maybe a six out of ten maybe not even but i still really enjoy watching it because like the good parts are so like iconic and good that uh, i find them really enjoyable it's funny because it's funny because they're so um there's definitely a bond formula right absolutely yeah like if you're making a bond movie you have to basically follow this recipe right like that's how Mm -hmm. they i feel like a lot of times and especially for a lot of years they've followed a very Mm -hmm. specific formula um almost like they put the whole series on autopilot to a certain extent right um and and i think a lot of (laughs) pretty much yeah (laughs) (laughs) And, and i and i think the um the the best Bond movies typically typically at least in my opinion are the ones that do a really good job of like breaking from that formula and doing something mm-hmm. totally different right like yeah um what like the I mean we'll talk ones, about it not necessarily they deviate from the formula but they are self-aware about the formula and they do something fun with it I think those are the ones that are my favorite at least yeah yeah <coughs> I mean Sorry. as far as like likes and dislikes I like. Mm-hmm. The gadgets, that's one of my oh, favorite yeah. like things that you see in Bond movies are cool gadgets. And I put a little caveat on that. I like the gadgets <laughs> when they're actually useful. When they're <laughs> Sometimes they're, the gadgets are nonsensical, and it's like, this is just, you know, it, like, especially in the campier movies, they have some really silly gadgets. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that, I don't need that. But like, when the gadgets are like, cool and do something, they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I get really into those gadgets, especially all the vehicles. Love the vehicles in in the Bond movies. Yeah, I don't know about I don't know about you guys. One of my favorite vehicles from the whole Bond series is the car from The Spy Who Loved Me that turns into a submarine. Yes, yes. yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, dislikes uh, for me, it's the main dislike, and this is like a super obvious one that you know, mm-hmm. every, like especially like Hugo said, watching it with a twenty twenty one viewpoint. Uh, there's a lot of misogyny. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah, in the earlier Bond sure. movies, and like because you know, obviously we're cognizant of when the movies came out. I'm able to watch these movies and still say, okay. Aside from mm-hmm. that, what do I like about this movie? Because it, you know, it's like you know, I really don't like that aspect of the the Bond movies. Yeah, and it's not to say that like the the romance and even like Bond sleeping around, like you know, that's that's not the thing I dislike. It's when it's like in the Connery movies where he'll like straight up beat women and you know and yeah it no thank you maybe like there's that scene i think there's that scene 
is it in I can't remember if it's Goldfinger or if it's uh, from Russia with Love where he's at the, it's Goldfinger it's definitely Goldfinger where he's talking to some guy who's giving him a mission and then the girl he was with shows up and she was like <coughs> oh uh, honey just go away it's man talk and she leaves and he she and just, he, he and he like smacks her, her on the ass yeah, yeah, yeah. no thank you like oh okay uh, we're doing this now uh, yeah. Like, yeah in that sense they feel they feel pretty dated they're really dated and, you know. and, and like I said, the romance stuff, like what, like you know, him seducing women as part of his missions, all that stuff. That's mm-hmm. part of the bond. Yeah, that's part of the bond experience. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, I, I, I draw a, a line, you know, there. It's like, okay, well, let, mm-hmm. you know, let's not be mean. <laughs> yeah. Bond was like you. It's like you gotta. You always have to keep in mind the context that it was originally Absolutely. created in, right? Like, yeah. it was created by someone who had been in the British Secret Service, in the Naval Intelligence Service, Ian mm-hmm. Fleming. And it was a film, or and novels, obviously, created by men for men, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and specifically created by men from that age for men from that age. Like, that was the original nexus of Bond, right? So, like, yeah. all of the problematic portrayals around especially misogyny that's like the biggest thing i think of course but some of the other movies you know really play on like racial stereotypes too to a certain degree live and let die Um, looking at you bud (laughs) yeah exactly um but even small little thing small little stereotypes in other films too right oh for sure i guess i i guess all i'm saying with that is like it's definitely a fantasy portrayal that was Mm -hmm. the fantasy of men in the 50s and 60s of how they thought, you know, the ideal man from the 50s and 60s should be. You got to remember, this is the age of, like, the height of Playboy as well, right? Yeah. Like, Playboy literally never got bigger than, like, the 60s and 70s. And, I mean, that's when Bond was big. It all kind and, of was melded together. And I feel like, to me, that context is is something that I appreciate a lot, especially with the Connery films and the films of the 60s. I feel like I get where those elements that are dated are coming from. I feel like the series took a little too long after that to get over that stuff. Yeah. Like, I feel like in the Roger Moore area, we're, you know, we're post-counterculture, we're post, you know, the, the revolutions of 1969, the cultural revolutions of 1969. Like, there's stuff has happened. Like, the world had moved on at, at least, you know, to some extent, because like when you go back and see a lot of eighties movies and seventies movies, they still have some really dated elements. But um, I don't know. I feel like the Roger Moore era. I don't know if you. We'll talk about who our favorite Bond is, but like for me, the Roger Moore era, the, the stuff that I've seen is the one that feels the most out of place in some ways. Because like I can still, even though there's those things that I don't like with today's eyes in the Sean Connery movies, I understand the time they were made in but then when i see a movie made in like 1975 77 or whatever and it just feels a little off yeah uh, yeah i, I feel like the whole bond franchise uh until recently like daniel craig's era mm. i think has always been five to ten years behind the rest of culture and maybe that's like in terms of like you know those particular issues well, uh, okay. Okay. Maybe. I, I, guess, I wouldn't. Like, I wouldn't say that for the early movies. I mean, the no. Early, there are, the, no. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Obviously, with Connery, that was the culture at the time. But like, like you're saying with it, Roger Moore, yeah. it's like you know we, we you know <clears throat> there had been a cultural revolution, uh, and maybe and it like, had maybe also, I'm picturing it having taken roots in the rest of the world much more than it actually did, and maybe this is you know maybe Roger mm-hmm. Moore was still very much the the way things were at in that time period. But it does feel like it, 
they're dragging a little bit. And they you can see yeah. the progress in the franchise uh, where uh, the women characters start to be written better and they're given more mm-hmm. important roles and they're less it's less about them as objects and, and more about them as characters. Uh, and, and there's also yeah. like I feel like there's also sort of a back and forth as well because like the, yes. the Dalton movies, for example, are not as misogynistic and and as you know the the, the more movies were, then you know with uh, I mean I really like Goldeneye. I feel like Goldeneye is kind of its own thing compared to the other Brosnan movies. But then the other Brosnan movies feel like they are reverting back to formula a little bit more. Yeah. And I, I guess I think there's uh, they, the it feels like. It feels, there's sorry, a lot it, of producer control. And I feel like the producers are always, oh, this was successful, so we'll just do that again. And then they try something different. Oh, this wasn't quite as successful. I guess we'll go back to the original formula. And I, I think it's more driven by that than necessarily like a creative choice yeah. to make those movies misogynistic. You know what I mean? It does always feel like they're kind of reacting to whatever the, yeah. the criticism was of the most recent movie, right? Yes. Like. They're, mm-hmm. they're always they're always like, well, we went too serious on that one, so we got to go more yeah. lighthearted the next movie. And then it's like, oh, we went way too far in that direction. Now we got to go back to our roots and be really serious again, right? Like, yeah. yeah. They, yeah. And I agree with the like, yo-yo analogy. Even, even with, um, and regardless of just the, the you know the, the the cultural element of that, but even with the the movies as in terms of what they do with their action, the way the style that they choose. It, it does feel like the franchise was like a trailblazer in the 60s where it basically pioneered a genre that became ex- extremely popular uh, in the 60s and then later on in, in the history of cinema. Well, and we'll talk and about then, this more with this with, with this movie in particular, like later on. But like, yeah. in, as an example, that in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, there's a lot of the, the sequences where Bond is fist fighting. And yeah. as they're jumping from shot to shot within this fight, I'm like, oh, this is very similar to the Bourne movies. Yeah. This and, is this is know, this actually looks more modern than I would have thought. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. and and it's yeah. because you know movies like this one and other Bond movies set up these action movie mm-hmm. techniques that we see all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. But then after that, the, the, it became a little more reactionary to what the rest of of cinema was doing. Like even Casino Royale, to some extent, which spoilers is my favorite Bond movie. Like to some extent, it does feel like they saw you know the Bourne trilogy and even maybe Batman Begins or at least what Batman Begins was supposed to be and they got this idea of how this movie should be and I feel like with Craig they managed to create their own identity but like in many ways oftentimes they're kind of reacting to what's happening around them uh, in in movies and that I don't know I feel like that that's both good and bad about the series like it, it's kind of cool to just watch different eras of this series because you kind of get an idea of what's happening in cinema at that time. And it's kind of like, as a cultural experiment, I think it's it's really interesting. And it is cool within the Bond franchise that sometimes they are the pioneer in, yeah. in something, and then sometimes, like you're saying, they're, they're yeah. learning from the other things, which is probably a key to the series' longevity, that they Absolutely. are yeah. taking lessons from other action movies that took lessons from Bond movies, and that's you know how they keep, yeah, and there's a they back keep and forth, becoming yeah. refreshed. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So we talked about it. Okay. So No Time to Die just came out. Um, Matt, you didn't get to see it, I think. Uh, I did not get yeah. to see it yet. Yeah. Ah. The, the funny story about that is that apparently in LA, everybody went to the theaters all of a sudden because right. it, yeah. the, uh, literally every ticket within a 30 mile radius was sold out, you know, in my area for the next four days. Hey, so, yeah. like, 
have good, not seen it. Good for the theaters. I, I hope they get good business. I hope people are being safe, hopefully, in the theaters, but uh, still. Yep. We'll see uh, how it goes. I had no trouble finding tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I could have seen the movie six times this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. But, but I, I saw it. Yeah, so I did. I it did came out it. actually, uh, I guess, 10 days ago in Italy. Um, but I watched it on Tuesday because I, I wanted to wait where I could find a, a screening that was in English because I didn't want to see this dubbed because, you know, it's a very British movie and I want to see the British You want to see it be British. <laughs> yeah, I want to see it be British. I think that's an essential element of, of the Bond franchise. If there's one thing that the Bond franchise should be is British, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> Despite the fact that most of the Bonds, well, I guess they were all, or a lot of them were British, I mean, not necessarily the, English, though. They're British, yeah. Not English, yeah. maybe, but yeah. they're definitely British. Um, or at least <laughs> acting very extremely British. Um, so, yeah, so we saw it just briefly. I thought it was awesome. I encourage everyone who likes these movies to go see it. I thought, I don't know, it, it wasn't my favorite Craig movie, but there's two Craig movies that are my favorite Bond movies. So I sort of like, um, I, it didn't quite reach those heights for me, but I think it's, it's still among the better entries in the series for sure. I really had a great time. I, I really loved it. I, yeah. I, I think this is, this will be the lesson for all future bond series on how to close out mm-hmm. someone's time as bond. Uh, yeah, because that's for sure. it, it, it I, I really, really loved it. And it made me both sad to see Daniel Craig's time end, but also very hopeful for the future of the bond franchise because they told an emotionally resonant story Mm -hmm. in a bond movie and you don't always get that with bond (laughs) you know i I think an interesting footnote to what you just said jeff is i believe this is the first time that they made this movie knowing that for sure this was the actor's last turn or go in this role right like knowing there is no more of this actor in this role after this like Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure that's the first time this has actually happened Funnily enough, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is our film to remember, might be kind of an exception to that. Because like even during filming, it, it seemed pretty clear that Lazenby wasn't going to come back and that even the director who worked on Bond movies before wasn't going to come back. So they but it wasn't had... like it wasn't a stated thing, though. But it, right. no, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. a stated thing before. It wasn't the objective behind the movie. And it also wasn't the conclusion to a run. It's like, it was just like, oh, they just happened to make one movie with one actor and they knew there wasn't going to be more so it's not exactly yeah, that, the same sorry hugo i was going to say the, no. the producers uh were definitely trying to not have that be the case with with mm. lazenby well for a while at least um right. but anyway yeah it's a good point but yeah yeah i but highly recommend no time to die in fact as soon as i got out of the movie i texted matt and I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like, stop whatever you're doing and go watch No Time to Die. <laughs> right, right now. Go right see now. it right now. Go see it right now. <laughs> now, if you're watching this podcast, please continue to watch the podcast and then go see No Time to Die. <laughs> definitely. Obviously. Definitely. Um, so, uh, with that in mind, so we really enjoyed No Time to Die, but I think uh, it might be clear who what the answer to these questions are for us, but what is our favorite... I'm just going to go around and say, who's our favorite Bond if we have a favorite Bond uh, title song, and what our top five 007 films are. So uh, whoever wants to begin. Let's kick it off with the guest. Yes. Who my favorite Bond is? Mm. Such a hard hard question to answer, because I like a lot of them for a lot of different reasons. 
Mm-hmm. If I if if you were to put a gun to my head and kind of make me choose, like force me to choose, I would have a really hard. I'd probably just die, but I would probably have a hard time <laughs> choosing between Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig. Mm. Um, I I like the seriousness that both of them bring to the portrayal. Right, I think um, with both of them, you feel you definitely get the feeling that these guys are killers, man. Like. Do not get on their bad side. They will hunt you down, and you will you will die, <laughs> right? Like, um, so I mean, I I think I like both of that. I I also am tempted to kind of say Connery because even though we talked already about a lot of the problematic parts of his portrayal, I mean, he originated the character, but mm-hmm. not only that, it's 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 the cool factor that he brings to it, right? He's yeah. such a charismatic presence in pretty much every facet of his portrayal that it's hard not to. It's hard not to really enjoy him specifically as Bond if not – you know, if you don't enjoy like, the whole movie, you probably will like, enjoy Connery's portrayal. Yeah, I feel like even if the the, the Connery movies might not be your favorite, like I, I still think that despite you know other movies being better in, in my opinion, he's still the most iconic as Bond. Like, yeah. When you think of James Bond, the first image that comes to mind is still Sean Connery even all right. years after that. And yep. I, I will say, yep. uh, uh, Lazenby is uh, approaching the charisma levels of mm-hmm. Sean Connery, and so I, I, I like, despite him only being in the one movie, I'm like, like as far as who they picked to come in after Sean Connery, I was like, oh, that's actually a yeah. pretty solid pick. He, he has good screen presence, and and he, you know, he's a good-looking man, and you know, well built and everything. So like, you know, yeah, he's got a lot of the same things that made Connery. Perfect for the role, and then uh, and then after Lazenby's done, they bring back Connery for one more, and then and then we get Roger Moore, <laughs> who is very different in basically every kind of facet. Uh, and a lot of people love Roger Moore, and that's great. But for me, I'm I'm with Matt. My favorites are Daniel Craig and Timothy Dalton, and mm-hmm. I really like. I just don't know how Timothy Dalton wasn't you know wasn't didn't do more. Like I it it just baffles me. Because I really love both of those movies, but uh, I do think I still pick pick Daniel Craig overall, and I think it's because the his story arc is self contained. <laughs> yeah, for me, for me, it's it's Daniel Craig. Just like I grew up with it, like it's very difficult for me. Like for me, it was the first time that I really got into oh, James Bond as a series and not just like individual movies that maybe were cool. Um, like growing up, to some extent, I, I did feel initially that Brosnan was almost like at least in GoldenEye and even to some extent I still feel that way I feel like in GoldenEye Brosnan is the perfect encapsulation of all that Bond has been in all the movies before it like he's he's cool like Sean Connery but he's also capable of being like sillier like Roger Moore and there are moments where he's more serious like Dalton and that whole movie I feel like is the ultimate classic Bond Bond movie where it, it kind of brings all the different elements of Bond into one thing and then after that they were never able to really do that again and they had to you know do different things with the franchise um but but yeah craig overall is still my favorite it's, it's the first time that i really cared about uh, with the exception of on her majesty's secret service again but that where i really cared about the character as a character and i wasn't just oh this is a larger than life figure who's who's just doing these awesome spy things um and yeah, and with no time to die, especially like his emotional arc throughout the five movies is, is really impressive. Even even though two of them are a, a little weaker yeah. overall. Um, Brosnan <laughs> is des- 
Brosnan is, de- is definitely the most polished Bond yeah. out of all of them, right? Like with, to your point, yeah. like he they've rounded all the corners of James mm-hmm. Bond with Pierce Brosnan's yeah. portrayal for sure. And that, and I feel like that's the reason why both in terms of the actor and his portrayal and what the movies are doing with Craig, they did something so completely different. Because like after Brosnan, I, I feel like there was nothing left to say for that same character, and you had to do something different with it. Yeah. Um, in terms of Bond songs, do do we have any strong opinions on this? Because like. For me, like it's pretty much oh, it's Skyfall. Shout out to Live and Let Die just because it's uh, Paul McCartney and so I'm awesome, say, Live and Let Die is is going to be my favorite Bond song like, overall. But, but that movie, I is prefer so the bad. Guns N' Roses version. So okay, <laughs> that, all right, <laughs> that's a take. <laughs> I, I, but, I want to hear that. <laughs> but I, I I mean I when I watched uh, Live and Let Die earlier this week. I was like, I'm going to like this movie because I love that Bond song so much. I just yeah. know I'm going to like it. And I didn't like the movie. But uh, it, did get, it did get an extra bonus half a star from me because of that song. <laughs> because the song is so good. But then my second favorite, uh, I was thinking about this. And I got to say, I think my, my second favorite uh, Bond song is actually You Know My Name. The Chris Cornell mm. song from Casino Royale. Uh, I, I right. like Chris Cornell. So... It, it's easy to pick that. Fair enough. <laughs> plus, plus that opening title sequence from Casino Royale was I, it's I, cool. I realized this recently. Like, it's so different from every other title sequence yeah. that, especially the fir- the few that came right before it. You know, those were very like CGI heavy in the sense of like just you know computer animated like mm-hmm. women drenched in oil for the world is not enough, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then they went into that one for. Um, Casino Royale, where it's all cards and it's very animated and like it's so cool. And it's but, still, um, but it still had song... sort of a, a 1950s, 1960s aesthetic to yeah. that opening yeah. sequence. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I mean, so that song fits really well there as well. And then, of course, I'm not gonna, no doubt, you know, Skyfall, really freaking good. <laughs> for me, like, there's something about how Skyfall fits the the vibe and the theme of that movie so perfectly that somehow out of it aside from the fact that it's it's the most basic pick you can have it was a gigantic hit at the time but like it's just a really good song and it really fits the movie so it it just kind of but i will say billy eilish is no time to die i think will be an underrated pick i think in a few years we'll remember it because the movie again that song really fits the movie well i think and i really like that song uh, the only other uh, pick that I would say for a Bond song out of the ones that you guys have already said, because you ne- you named some of my favorites already, mm-hmm. would be would be Nobody Does It Better, which was the theme from The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, mm. it's, by, it's by Carly, Carly Simon. Simon. Uh, very, very good. It was actually uh, composed by Marvin Hamlish, which he is he was a pretty big film composer, and um, they, he was kind of the... It was one of the rare times in those days when they did not have John Barry doing the music for the film. So um, don't get me wrong. I I will take John Barry doing a, a James Bond movie as the score any day over Marvin Hamlish, but I do like that one song. <laughs> I, I will say uh, uh, nobody does it better tied with Live and Let Die for second on the highest it peaked on the U.S. charts. Uh mm. Uh, Live and Let Die and and, uh, Nobody Does It Better both peaked at number two. Uh, The only one that peaked higher was A View to a Kill. Duran Duran peaked at number one on the U.S. charts. (laughs) Wow. 
I mean, yeah, yeah Duran Duran were pretty big in the 80s. Yeah. Well, Jeff, Jeff and I were talking about this recently. It's like the Bond movies always do a really good job of capturing artists who mm-hmm. are like literally at the very cusp of their or uh, like the very height of their popularity at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we were saying, like, yeah, in 2015, they did um, Sam Smith. I haven't heard anybody talk about Sam Smith in three or four years at least. But nope. at that time, whoo, that everybody was talking about him, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. And so now we see that uh, Billie Eilish is going to be on the downhill slide. Sorry. Billie. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Sorry, Billie. Uh, I mean, in two or three years, we're not going to be talking about you anymore. Well, like, no, that didn't happen with Adele. Adele. Like, like, you're right. I'm, you're I'm right. pretty confident Billie Eilish she's at be fine. 21 or whatever she is. She's she's pretty set for life at this point. Yeah. So I don't think <laughs> oh, she doesn't. Okay. She definitely does not have to work another day in her life. That's for nope. sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, so okay top five Bond movies very quickly uh, for me I'll start I have at five I have On Her Majesty's Secret Service which is the film to remember this week Uh, at four I have Goldeneye for the reasons that I said before also a childhood favourite at three I have No Time to Die at two Skyfall and at one Casino Royale Casino Royale is still my favourite despite the fact that in some ways Skyfall is a more I think a more well structured film and it's a Definitely a prettier film because, I mean, the cinematography was absolutely amazing on that one. Uh, there's something about Casino Royale that still gets me. It, the way it humanizes the character, in, in to some extent, Skyfall is a consequence of that. But the achievement of what they did with the character in Casino Royale is still hasn't been beaten for me. So what about you guys? I'll go. Uh, my, in my five spot, I have Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Number four, The Living Daylights. Number three, License to Kill, which, you know, this is indicating just how much I like Timothy Dalton's tenure as Bond. Uh, Number two, Casino Royale. And then number one, No Time to Die, which I, like I said, I absolutely love. So, you know, not not a surprise there. Really, can't stress enough how much you should go see No Time to Die. (laughs) Matt. (laughs) Every person in L.A. Um, For me, I... It seems like we are very Craig heavy in this list, which we I are. guess I will I I will be too. That's okay. Uh, number five for me is Doctor No. Mm. Uh, number four for me is Skyfall. Number three is our movie of the week on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, number two is From Russia with Love, and number one is Casino Royale. Subject to change since I haven't seen No Time to Die, I suppose, but mm-hmm. that's where it stands right now. From what, what I, will Love, say, I will say is also my favorite Connery. Like I think a lot of people say Goldfinger, and I feel like From Russia with Love is a much more focused movie. Uh, yeah, Goldfinger is my favorite Connery. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> but well, then, then like, my, my my second favorite Connery is From Russia with Love. Yeah, I Russia I would Love, say f- like that final fight in From Russia with Love and the tension awesome. on that train. Oh, it's it's, it's really excellent. Like it holds that up you'd... completely. You just said the key word, the tension in that, yeah. in that, right before that fight, right where yeah. you've seen you've seen Robert Shaw's character throughout the whole movie. You know he's the bad guy. You know Bond also knows he's the bad guy, and the bad guy knows that Bond is Bond. So you're like, oh my god, just get start fighting already. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So also that final thing, and then we'll get into the movie. Um, what do you guys think they'll do for the future of the series? Because like, I feel like. Craig is a really tough act to follow and 
I don't know. Like, do they go back to sort of a zanier, sillier tone, or do they try to reinvent it completely? Like, I really don't know how you follow Craig. And I know, and I know I'm t- saying this with the context of No Time to Die, uh, which Matt hasn't seen and we won't spoil, but still, like, the fact that they give a complete arc to the character like this, and which hasn't been done before, I, I really don't know where they go from here. Because, like, I feel like you can't go back anymore. Like, that... 60s 70s bond just doesn't i don't know if it has a place in 2020s cinema i will say that the most bond-esque non-bond movie that has come out in like the last 10 years or so Mm. in my opinion is atomic blonde right i don't know if you guys saw that from a few years back but like Mm -hmm. the act the act the action yeah the action sequences specifically in that movie when i came out of the theater from that i was like that was awesome like, mm-hmm. and, and I think the reason is because it's so realistic. They get so tired in that movie, oh, yeah. right? As, as they're fighting each other, like they just get exhausted by the end of the fight to the point where they can barely throw a punch. Yeah. But anyway, the whole point of me bringing this up is because I feel like the, the Bond movies are always trying to take influences from other things, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you just said earlier about uh, Casino Royale, all of the influences you can see from the Bourne trilogy, I mean, I, I think I, I'm just cr- trying to sit here and think about, okay, what are the other things that are happening in this j- same general type of movie that they will try to draw influence from? I mean, I, I think just in a general sense, as far as where they take the character itself, I don't know. There's been a lot of writing, you know, online, uh, rumors online and everything about uh, it kind of seems like the producers may want to even think about having a woman play James Bond. And, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's Jamie Bond or maybe they just have a totally different name altogether. I don't know. But um, I think they definitely are kind of at a point where they go, we want to potentially try doing something totally different. Who knows? We'll see. And I hope they do. And And I really hope they do. That's what I think is the solution here. I think by seeing Daniel Craig's arc all the way through and they've seen that people responded well to having a complete life of Bond with one Bond actor, I think that shows that uh, audiences can get used to the idea of a complete reboot and uh, yep. if we've seen anything from, you know, comic book movies, you can do a reboot every decade with the same character, <laughs> and and people will go see it. So sometimes, <laughs> if you're Spider Man, you can do it three times in a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. So I think that's the the next step is to go ahead and do another reboot, do a completely another completely new take. Uh, I I you know I I think having a, a woman Bond or woman 007 if they don't want to you know mm-hmm. carry on the name Bond. Uh, then cool. That 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 would be a, a, an interesting way to take it. Uh, I also, as far as like actors and things, like if I, I've been we've been saying it for years. I would love to see Idris Elba as yeah. Bond. Uh, he I might like definitely. Sailed, I think though. he's probably getting a little too old now for yeah. that. I mean, I, okay. I will say they could do a big one-off with Idris Elba because they know people have been wanting to see him as Bond for such a long time, and I feel like that could work. But I don't know if they are willing to commit. I mean, just talk just about, about an actor movie. with charisma. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, that he's got dude, that Bond charisma. Yeah, uh, that yeah. man is the coolest guy you'll ever see. So uh, another thought <laughs> I had was uh, maybe like someone like John Boyega, who yes. you know. Again, I've British. Seen and, speculation with that, yeah. And and That'd I think uh, he's familiar with being in a major franchise, so that won't be a daunting mm-hmm. thing for him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Looks great in a tux. Looks great in a tux. In red yeah. carpets and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I, don't know. I I think that would be a, a good option. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I hope they're not too afraid of of like nerds on the internet. Like, I hope they are willing to <laughs> go for it. Like, because No Time to Die has some stuff in it uh, that they've been willing to to go for a more progressive uh, Bond franchise uh, entry. And uh, you know, I think that, I hope they they are well. I w- let's say brave enough to go in that direction because we know how angry and annoying film fans can be, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I'm excited regardless because I feel like at this point they've, with the Craig era, they've reached a level of consistent, relatively consistent quality that I, I hope goes on going forward. And they've also plucked really good, interesting directors, which is something that they didn't used to do as much. Like they used to get more of a director for hire type person to do the movies or somebody who had worked in like drama, but then they would be like, Oh, but you know, the, the second unit will focus on the action and stuff. And the fact that, you know, this, this series had Sam Mendes and even to some extent, Kori Yoji Fukunaga, who's a really interesting pick. I I hope they continue to do that and give it to interesting, smart uh, directors that have a vision for it. You, you are right. You are right, Hugo, that, you know, the most recent, um, movies where they've done that is is new for the series like for i i don't know how many people know this i think probably most people do but um casual in and out fans of bond series may not but this whole series for its 50 plus years of existence has been family run it's basically a family business for the entire you know length of the series it was you know started by cubby broccoli his daughter and his uh, adopted son picked it up in about the mid to mid to late 80s and the 90s and then they've run with it ever since mm-hmm. but they you know that family business you're right hugo used to especially in the 60s and 70s they would basically just use the same team to make mm-hmm. every single movie and yeah. the the next director that they would get used to be the second unit director or he was the editor or you know, somebody yeah. else who worked on the film in a different capacity and they would just go, here, we, we'll just get Billy to direct this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we've talked a bunch about Bond. Uh, we all have a lot to say. I feel like th- this series is at least extremely interesting in the way it fits into cinema, I feel. Um, whether you, you know, like most of the movies or not. Um, but yeah, let's get into the film to remember this week, which is 1969's uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, the film was released in 1969, and it was directed by Robert R. Hunt, uh, as which fits right into what you were saying, Matt, because Robert R. Hunt, was this was his directorial debut, but he had worked as an editor and second unit director in the previous entries in the series. So all the five movie that, movies that preceded it, he was working on them as an editor. Um, he wanted the film to be different from the ones that came before, and I think by most accounts, he pretty much succeeded, and it would be the last time that he worked on the series. So both him as the director and the actor, George, uh, sorry, uh, what's his name? George, yeah, Lazenby. George Lazenby. George Lazenby, yeah. I was forgetting the George. It would be the, the first and last time that they, they, they would have that role in the series. Um, it was the first entry, as we were saying, that didn't star Sean Connery as Bond, as he had become tired on, of the series, although he would eventually return twice to it, which is interesting, and the only one to star George Lazenby. Lazenby had very little acting experience and wasn't the first choice for the film, but he, he caught Robert Broccoli's attention on an ad for something called Fry's Chocolate Cream, which I have no idea what that is, but hey. Um, Sounds super and- British, though. 
it was it, it was sounds, ice cream. Yeah, it sounds yeah. incredibly British. Um, many actors were considered for the role, and interestingly enough, one of the actors that were considered was was a very young Timothy Dalton, who was in his early twenties, I guess, at this point. But he would eventually get the chance to play Bond in two movies in the eighties. And yep. here on the notes, we have Matt, who apparently has a story of how Lazenby was cast. Yeah, it's an awesome story. Um, so George Lazenby was from us. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Uh, George Lazenby was from Australia. Um, he grew up there. He grew up in a very kind of you know working class background. He was a mechanic. He then was like a car, used car salesman, basically. Followed a, a girl that he knew to uh, England, started being a model. Um, he then started acting in some commercials, which is the Fry's chocolate cream commercial that you mentioned before. They even, apparently in the press, they even called him the Fry Guy. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was his nickname. Um, but basically, he his agent said that she thought he would be great for the part of James Bond because she had heard that they were going to be recasting this role. Um, there were a bunch of people who had already lined up, including Timothy Dalton, as you mentioned, a bunch of other actors. Uh, they had a predetermined list that they wanted to look at, and Lazenby was not on that list at all mm -hmm. in the beginning. Because uh, again, he really didn't have any acting experience. He just appeared in a commercial, and that was pretty much it. So he, he knew that he needed to impress the team. He literally found out where Sean Connery got his haircut, which was the barbershop at the Dorchester Hotel. And he went and got a haircut from Sean Connery's barber. <laughs> he he went to where Sean Connery – he somehow found out where Sean Connery got his dry cleaning done and found out that they had a suit that had been ordered for Sean Connery that Connery never picked up. So he was like, <laughs> screw it. I'll pick up the suit. He literally like stole the suit from the dry cleaner. He didn't even pay for it. He, so he's got Connery's hair. He's got his suit. He said he already owned a Rolex, so he wore that. He said – and he basically went to the office. He tried to get in the door. They didn't let him in at first. Uh, he, and so he kind of like went away and then came back and rushed past the secretary or whatever into the casting director's office. He stood there at the door, and the casting director was on the phone. And he stood there at the door, and he kind of stood like this. And with – the podcast listeners can't see, but basically he's got his wrist up near his face – and his sleeve was pulled down just enough so you could see the Rolex. And so he's, he's standing there like this, and it catches the casting director's uh, attention. And he says, uh, well, what's your, what's your experience, your, your acting experience? And Lazenby just straight up lied. He was like, <laughs> well, I've acted in the Ukraine. I've acted in China. And I've, you know, all international stuff. And he says, like in interviews, he says, yeah, I, I lied and told them all international stuff because I knew it would be difficult for them to check on it. <laughs> There was no letterbox so, at the time. There was no, no letterbox. No letterbox, no IMDb, no nothing. Yeah, so <laughs> apparently, apparently, you know, what happened was he then said, the casting director said, we go, well, we got to take you to Cubby and Harry, Harry Saltzman, the producers. Mm -hmm. They went. They, they really liked him at first. Uh, they actually had the director. Um, he, he actually flew back from Switzerland where they were doing some location scouting specifically to meet him. And whenever he told – he was sitting there one-on-one -on -one with the director. The producers were not there. And he told the director – you know, the director said, so what, what have you acted in? Like what's your experience? He was kind of pissed that he had been flown back from Switzerland off of the location scouting he was trying to do. And apparently Lazenby just straight up was like, I got to be honest with you, man. I've never acted before. <laughs> and the director was like, what? And he's, apparently the director just started busting out laughing. And he said, dude – 
you say you're not an actor, but you just fooled and, you know, got by two of the most ruthless guys in Hollywood. I would say you're an actor for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Stick with me, kid. I'm going to make you James Bond. Like, it's the best story in history. He literally just faked his way into being James Bond. Fake it till you make it, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. He he lived it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He did it. So, okay. Back to our boilerplates. Uh, the film also stars Diana Rigg as Contessa Teresa Di Vincenzo or Tracy Draco, if you want to make it easier. As... I just want to say, last night Matt and I were talking about your outline here, Hugo, and I was I read through that and I, I said her name and I said, but Hugo will say it much better than I just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And she who uh, I, I mean, in my opinion, but I feel like in a lot of people's opinion, is one of the best quote-unquote Bond girls, I don't love using that term, of the series, and also stars Telly Savalas, I guess, as classic Bond villain and Stavro Blofeld. It was, I think he was the second actor who played this character, because in the previous movie it was uh, John Pleasance? Or he was his name? Do- Donald Pleasance. And Donald yeah, he Pleasance. Was the, he, was the second, he was the second Blofeld actor that you actually saw his face. Yes. Okay, right, because he, do, he, he does appear before as well, that's true. Um, so the shoot for the film was apparently quite challenging, uh, both because of the tough situation where they were shooting, because they were shooting in this remote loca- location of Piz Gloria, or Gloria, whatever you want to call it, and which is like the location in the Swiss Alps was a real place. It was like a restaurant that was famous because it had, like, we, we see at that at one point that the, the the floor moves around, and that was something that really happened in the restaurant. So they chose it because it was a really cool place where they could shoot. Uh, go ahead, man. Yeah, I was going to add, apparently, um, they, uh, they ch- part of the reason that they chose this location was because they knew that it was going to be the headquarters for Blofeld, mm-hmm. obviously, who's obviously the bad guy, yeah. and they liked that it resembled the Eagle's Nest, which was one of Hitler's most famous hideouts, which is mm-hmm. same thing. It's at the very top of a mountain in the Alps, right? So, like, they were like, oh, that looks like the Eagle's Nest. That's where yeah. Blofeld should be. Considering that it's a real place where people would go to eat, it's surprisingly perfect for the evil layer of this, you know, supervillain or whatever. Uh, it really yeah. works well. Um, so, but it was a really difficult place where to shoot a movie. And also because apparently Lazenby was not, didn't have, a, you know, aside from not having acting experience, didn't really have a great relationship with the director, even though apparently he liked him at the beginning, but during the shoot at least, and with his co-stars specifically Diana Rigg, who apparently is said to have like eaten raw garlic right before all of their love scenes just to spite him because uh, they didn't, really didn't like each other apparently. Although in interviews, <laughs> I think Lazenby denied this. He said, oh, this it was all kind of blown out of proportion. But Di- that's Diana... The, that's the story at least. Diana Rigg, uh, her interviews, kind of the similar thing. Like she was, mm-hmm. she basically said like, there was one time where we all had lunch and we were mm-hmm. going to be shooting one of the love scenes afterwards, and I ate something that had garlic in it. Right. And and I think, to your point, Hugo, I think it was, like, because of, like, the purported, you know, mm-hmm. fact that they, they, the fact that they didn't get along very well, like, I, it, I'm it, sure... It became especially, a story than it probably was. Especially for the times, right? I'm sure they would take a story like that and go, oh, this actress doesn't want to kiss James Bond, so she just ate raw garlic all the time. Like, yeah, and it's not like she can refute the that. point easily on Twitter, you know? Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, if, if a reporter made up that story, the actor or actress would, would be on Twitter immediately like, that's not true. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. You're just making it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The film made over $60 million at the box office in its original run, although apparently it made more with additional runs that it had later. But which, you know, by, it would have been a great box office return for the $7 million budget, which is, you know, relatively small compared to what it took in. But at the time, it was considered a disappointment because the previous entry in the series, which was the last one with Sean Connery, had made almost double the amount. And, you know, it was maybe one of the reasons why after that Sean Connery was sort of convinced, they managed to convince Sean Connery to come back, or at least they wanted him back. Um, In terms of critical reception as well, at the time of release, uh, the film received mixed reviews, especially because of Lazenby's performance. Um, and it, I think a lot of the mixed reviews at the beginning were sort of the shock of it not being Sean Connery, where at the time it wasn't. Yeah. We didn't have this idea of Bond as a character that would have many actors playing him. Um, but notably, later on, in uh, over time, I guess the film has received some sort of critical reevaluation with a lot of critics and directors as well now considering one considering it one of the best entries in the series. Um, one notable one is Christopher Nolan who, of course, you know, quoted this movie very directly, referenced it very directly in Inception, because, um, you know, the, the ending in, in, in that uh, snowy place where they have skis, they have, you know, ski chases, and even the big layer that explodes is, is very similar to what we see in, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, I, I, have guess, a, I have a, a lot of the, quote. A lot of the re-evaluation is because I feel like it, it's di- so different from the Bond movies of that from the movies before them and even a lot of the Bond movies after it because of the more serious tone, the way it sort of tries to humanise the character. And I feel like in many ways it is a precursor to, to Craig all those years later. Um, so yeah, that's what you, you mentioned Christopher Nolan. I had a quote also from Steven Soderbergh, who's another yes. you know big, big filmmaker, obviously, that, um, you know, uh, counts this as one of his favorites. He says, for me, there's no question that cinematically On Her Majesty's Secret Service is the best Bond film and the only one worth watching repeatedly for reasons other than pure entertainment. Shot to shot, this movie is beautiful in a way that none of the other Bond films are. That is, is Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, I will say, um, we'll talk about some action moments where the film looks a little, little dated, but I feel like visually... It is a massive improvement over the, the the movies that came before. There's a lot of creative shots, and a lot of really cool, interesting transitions. Um, like there's that one where he's looking outside of a window up to a pool, and on the pool we see the projection of the word casino. Yeah. And then it cuts to the casino. Like there's all that sort of very interesting visual details that maybe some of the movies that came before didn't really have. Even though I mean, the movies that came before had some really iconic imagery as well. Mm. Um, in terms of premise, what happens in this movie? So, in the opening scene of the film, we see Bond driving his Aston Martin down a road, and he meets a woman who uh, races him. But it seems, she seems to race him, but then she stops at a beach, and she's apparently a suicidal. And he saves her, and he gets into a fight with some goons that we don't really understand who they are. And then she runs away from him. And this is all before the credits. And the final thing that he says at the end of the credits is uh, a very cheeky line where he almost looks straight into the camera and says this never happened to the other guy which is i think a very cool way to introduce the idea that this movie is going to be different and and you know he he he's not going to be exactly like sean connery yeah well and it's a good way to like kind of laugh off the criticism yeah. that this isn't yeah. he's not sean connery like yeah no i know i'm not sean connery i'm not trying to be sean connery yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and then like and then it like, and then it goes into the credits too, and the credits show all of the images of the past Bond movies. So mm-hmm. that, you know, it's it's been said that this was those two things: the line and all the images in the credit sequence, as well as a later scene uh, where he starts finding like items from his past mm-hmm. missions from the other movies. It's all a way that the filmmakers were trying to say, like, no, this is the same James Bond that you guys saw before. Like, this is still yeah. the same character. Yeah. But we're, we're, we're aware that you know that it isn't exactly the same. Yeah. Right, uh, right. So it was good. So he eventually meets uh, this woman again uh, at his hotel, and they sleep together, and then they... But he seems to be taken by her, and he is eventually taken in by... Uh, he's brought in by his... Uh, her father, I guess, who is this Draco character who's the... Uh, I think in the movie he's described as the second biggest uh, crime syndicate leader in the world behind Blofeld. And basically the premise of the movie is that he, Bond, is going to build a relationship with Tracy, uh, the girl who he met, who's Draco's daughter, and Draco is going to give him a hint of where Blofeld might be. And so Bond will try to track down Blofeld and take down his organization. I think that's the premise of the movie. Um, We'll get more into the plot later, but before, let's talk about the movie in general. So, what do you guys think of this film? I think we all had it on our top five, or maybe maybe I did not. Jeff didn't. I, didn't it's a but... number seven for me. Right. So it's still still very high. high. Yeah. 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 It's my third favorite film. I, I um, when I found out that we were kind of changing mm-hmm. to this one instead of License to Kill, I was definitely not sad at all because I love this film overall. I I think it's um, and you like I, License to Kill as well. And I like, yeah, I very much like License to Kill. Um, I, I think this movie, one of the things that I like about it is that it's one of the few Bond movies where we truly get to see Bond. Well, we'll talk about it in a lot more detail. But we get to see Bond as a human, right? Yeah. To your point of what you said before, Hugo, he's not like, he's not a larger than life figure that, you know, is is superhuman in every way like he is in some of the, some of the, I mean, frankly, every, every actor that has portrayed him has elements of that in their portrayal. Yeah. Um, but this is one of the few movies where he's actually a human person with human feelings and things that happen to him and vulnerabilities, right? So that's, I think, the biggest thing I like about it. Uh, I, in addition to those things, uh, what I really like about Lazenby's performance in this movie is a lot to do with his physical presence. Uh, He carries himself like a, a, a spy, like a super spy, right? He's like, we already talked about how, like, you know, he's... Uh, well-built guy, muscular, you know, very fit and all that. But, uh, you know, it it uh, it fits the character in, a, in a, a great way just from how it looks, but also the way he carries himself, very uh, uh, upright, very confident in, in everything. Uh, it does make his disguise uh, as Hillary uh, somewhat humorous t- uh, to me, which is uh, I kind of appreciate. Yeah. Uh, because like he honestly like he looks he looks like a, a American football linebacker <laughs> wearing a, a nerd disguise is like <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, which I, I I get a kick out of that so I, I and as far as like line delivery considering this guy didn't have uh, you know previous acting history pretty solid like really not a bad yeah. actor uh, mm-hmm. which is why when when we talked about it having some negative reviews when it came out I'm like were these guys watching the same movie because like this is he's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. They were all butthurt that it wasn't Connery. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's just that. Because honestly, I feel like the movie is is really strong. And 
for me, it it aside from the stuff that you said, and I completely agree that it's finally a movie where Bond is a human, and it's just easier to connect to the character and care what's happening to it, to care about what's happening to it in this one than the previous ones. It's also the first one where I feel like the plot and the characters are melded in a better way. I feel like the plot and the different plot lines all build up to the progression of the film. The film doesn't feel as episodic to me. It always feels like the next scene is a consequence of the scene before. And there aren't as many moments where I'm like, oh, okay, now we're having an action scene because there hasn't been an action scene for a while. Like <laughs> every time we get action, it's because it fits into what's happening in the story. Every time we get a, a quieter moment, it's because it fits what what is happening in the story. And I think more so than the Connery movies, it really feels like a modern film in terms of story. There are some things that are dated and we'll talk about them, but in terms of how the story progresses, it, it feels much more modern than a lot of the movies of the time and, and even to a lot of the Roger Moore movies for me. And to your point about the episodic nature of a lot of the other Bond movies, yeah. uh, you know, we don't get the monster of the week moments that we get mm-hmm. in the other movies with the yeah. henchmen. Uh, maybe it's because the henchmen in this movie aren't as iconic, but they're not meant to be. You know, like mm-hmm. they, you don't have a Jaws, you don't have an odd job, yeah. you don't have these other henchmen characters that you know show up multiple times throughout the movie. Uh, you know, inexplicably mm-hmm. to pick fights with no explanation yeah, it, for how they got there. Everything you know, it is, just kind of feels more grounded and, and yeah and kind of realistic i mean there's always some fantastical stuff of course but and if there still. wasn't fantastical stuff it wouldn't be a bond movie so like you know exactly yeah. right i think this one strikes the good balance that that you want for that stuff absolutely um so yeah i think we talked about lazenby i feel like lazenby does really well in this movie i it, i mean he's not as charismatic as connery but who is and like considering again that he hasn't had any acting experience i i thought he was pretty good like his presence is fantastic i agree like whenever there's a fight scene or an action scene, or, or any scene where he has to do anything physical, I feel like he's extremely believable in the Yeah, role. there's weight um, behind his movements. Absolutely, That yeah. you don't get from Roger Moore so much. Uh, you know, not that Roger mm-hmm. Moore is, like, bad in the action scenes, but, like, it really, you know, he just doesn't have the same physical presence that Sean Connery had or that Lazenby mm-hmm. has, and, you know. So I feel like the movie is basically divided into two big... Uh, plot lines. One is the relationship that he's building with Tracy, and the other is the big plot that uh, that Blofeld is 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 doing, and we're trying to stop. Um, do you feel like those two are melded together well, or do you think that overall maybe one of them is weaker than the other ones? Do you think Blofeld is a good villain in this one? Do you think Diana Rigg is a good character in this one, or Tracy is a good character in this one? Because for me, I feel like there's a pretty good balance. I think at the end, I care much more about Bond's relationship with Tracy because it's maybe because it's so different from the other movies than the overall plot that, of what Blofeld is doing. But still, I think it all serves to create a cohesive film, which I really enjoy. I, I mostly agree with that, Hugo. I think, um, I think both of the major... You are right. There's like two major things going on in this yeah. movie, right? The relationship and the stuff with Blofeld. I feel like those two story elements are strong together, or excuse me, strong on their own. Yeah, I think that they are melded together mostly in a good way. Except I feel like so you, it, the movie spends the first like forty-five minutes of the movie building this initial relationship with Bond and Tracy, mm-hmm. and then Tracy disappears for like yep. almost an hour. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that was and, what I was going to say. It's disjointed uh, from each other 
for a good portion of the movie. Yeah, and, and then she comes back, and it, when she comes back, that's when they start to meld a lot more closely, and it, that's when it gets really strong, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But I wish there was more of that interplay between the two in the meantime, I, and that it didn't only happen once we hit the hour 40 mark. <laughs> I agree, but I also think that the the story that they're telling allows for that to be relatively organic, because it's still like, oh, he's going to this remote location, and he's trying yeah. to catch Blofeld. Yeah, he's not going to bring Tracy with him. Exactly. Like right, Tracy right. doesn't wouldn't have a role in that. And I feel like if they tried to put her in there, it would, I don't know, it wouldn't necessarily work. It wouldn't make any but sense. At the same time, I feel like the, what the movie is doing is trying to tell you, oh, Bond for the first time is bringing his guard down and he's going to have an actual connection to a person and he's going to fall in love. And what he does in the mountains, because I think of the era where the movie was made and what the, sort of the idea of Bond was in the 60s doesn't completely fit in with that, but I sort of forgive it in the movie. I think we'll get into it when we get to, through the plot, but I, I, I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but still, overall, I think the movie is really strong structurally in that sense. Okay, let's get into a plot. I'll try to get through the plot as quickly as possible, and we'll stop and talk about uh, different scenes, different moments uh, that we liked, disliked, and discuss them. So... After that premise, uh, Draco, as I was saying, is brought in by Dra- uh, sorry Bond is brought in by Draco's men, and he is offered information on Blofeld as long, in a very transactional way, as he continues to romance Tracy. Um, Draco uh, wants him to eventually marry her, and he sort of represents the uh, um, strong uh, patriarchal figure of her family, where. She, I think he literally says, oh, she just needs... She's a rebel, but she just needs a strong man to dominate her. I think that's those are his literal words. And I like how they plant that element in there and use Tracy in the movies to, to push back against that. And it's very clear that despite his intentions with that, she's very independent from her father and she doesn't take his, you know, sort of old, uh, dated ways. Um, so at this point, uh, Bond goes back to London, M... Uh, the leader of the, the, the MI6 I, I do want to say that, that conversation where yeah, Draco sorry. says he needs, she needs a, a man to dominate her and, you know, and yeah. all that stuff. That is, and like, obviously that's a very dated thing. But oh, it, yeah. It is like, I, I almost laugh because I'm like, how the hell does Bond not say, dude, <laughs> you can't talk like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, well, I he guess, he kind of he does push back I mean, on it a little back bit. Pushes back a little he, bit, but because like, he said he says what she needs is a psychiatrist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa, dominate her! Come on, man, you're you're okay, her father. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Like it's definitely weird. At the same time, this character is. I think it gets lost in the movie that this character is supposed to be like the second biggest syndicate crime syndicate leader yeah. in the yeah. world. And it kind of. We kind of lose that thread later on in the movie. Because yeah. so much of his so much time on screen is about him trying to get Bond to seduce to help, his daughter. To help Bond, yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or to help him get Blofeld, because like, this guy sees Blofeld as a competition. And yeah, he right. wants but to that, take him that out. should have been a bigger focus, but I, yeah. I don't think it comes across <laughs> as big of a focus as it should have been. But uh, I also can't get over how much, I, I, every time I see Draco on screen, I think he looks like Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's like, okay, he's a he's a horrible person for what he tries to do for his daughter, but he's also, uh, they also managed to make him this funny, likable character. He's, he's kind of likable, yeah. He is likable. I think it's because he looks like Walt Disney. 
He's like this weird Italian guy who's like, oh yeah, sure, we'll get helicopters and go kill people. Why not? Yeah. He's, I don't know, he's funny. Um, so anyway, Bond come, goes come, back to Come London. to my birthday where we do bullfighting. Yes, sure. Why not? In Corsica. Yeah, that's what yeah. happens. Uh, we'll do that. Um, Typical Italian so yeah, birthday. Uh, <laughs> Typical Italian birthday. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so Bond goes back to London and M puts him off Blofeld's case. Um, but because he hasn't made it, he hasn't apparently made any progress in the last two years. He hasn't been able to find him. And Bond threatens to resign, and we get a really clever scene where Moneypenny, who's the, the, the classic secretary character, 2M, manages to sort of diffuse this situation, that was this tension that was building between the two characters, and she manages to get him off with, like, two weeks' leave. <coughs> Sorry. Where, after the two weeks' leave, he's just going to go investigate Blofeld. <coughs> but we... MI6 isn't really a big element of this movie. He's sort of doing his own thing, and he's just trying to get Blofeld independently. Um, and the movie really begins in the next scene, as you said, the uh, Draco's birthday party. Um, he shows up again, and Tracy shows up too, but she manages to guess that her dad is trying to set him, set her up with Bond, and there's sort of this weird transaction between them that, oh, if you, you know, romance my daughter, I will give you information on Blofeld. And she basically... <coughs> I'm going to have to pause. <coughs> Josh, pause. <coughs> <coughs> still pause. He's still dying. Yeah. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> sorry. Jeff, I'm not doing great. Do you mind taking over the plot? I don't. Do, do you want to go grab some water real quick, bud? <coughs> yeah, I'm going to have a glass of water. I'm sorry. It's just that I had this cold and... Uh, the talking has been making it worse. <laughs> okay, drink, drink some water, stop coughing, and then I'll start talking again. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if we're taking a break, I'm going to run to the bathroom. Can I do that? Yeah, go go real quick. I mean, I'm not going to take my time. Go, go real quick. <laughs> we're still in a hold, Josh. We're still in a hold. Um, we'll let you know when we get back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Have you guys had to have you guys had to pause like this before? Yeah, this happens all the time. <clears throat> okay. Okay, I'll just go back and say, th oh, this was a weird cut. Uh, we're gonna switch over to Jet. Uh, Grizz <laughs> doing the plot just because I had an uncontrollable fit of co of of. Coffee. Yeah, just tell me I have a sore throat, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take over the rest of the the plot. Yeah, I'll do that. I mean, where, where are we? Uh, let me find it. Uh, we're at yes, Draco's birthday. Okay. Okay, so. Uh, you josh three two one 
Um, so this is a weird cut, but I just had uh, I have a sore throat, so we had to stop the podcast for a second. Don't worry, no COVID or anything. I got tested. I am vaccinated. I'm fine. But uh, I think Grizz is going to take over narrating the plot, and I'll comment on it, so I don't have to talk as much. So get ready so, for the dulcet tones of Jeff Grizzolrich. Yes, so get ready for this <laughs> so, very Americanized version of a Bond movie. <laughs> oh, said, said with such disdain. Yeah. <laughs> I could I'm put kidding. on a fake British accent if you'd like, if that would make you feel better. Please, <laughs> please don't. Please don't. That would be funny. But... I'm really tempted. Uh, they yeah. all meet at Draco's birthday party, but Tracy guesses her father's intentions and shows her independence by forcing him to give Bond the information anyway. Uh, she runs away in tears, but Bond goes after her and tells her he really does care about her. Uh, this, as Hugo put, points out in the note, kind of the first indication that Tracy is not going to be like all the other Bond girls. Uh, she's an independent woman and uh, is uh, very capable. He handles herself well, uh, despite her I, father's you know, impressions of her. I think uh, it's also the first indication that we get to see that, just like Bond, Tracy is also a broken individual, right? Like, she's dealt with a lot in her life. She, you know, she can tell when people are trying to take advantage of her. And to her, it's just another indication that a guy that she kind of had a good time with earlier, right? Like, they, they kind of make that pretty clear in the uh, film before, is just somebody who is just using her just like everybody else in her life has, right? And I, I think it's, that's, I think, one of the biggest or strongest points of the movie is that Bond and Tracy are both broken people who find each other and I mean we'll get into the rest of it later but yes and it's also interesting that Bond um, shows that he wasn't in it for the transaction like because he got the information he could have let her go but he still goes to her and and so you can tell that somehow the few moments that they had before were different for him too it wasn't just another girl he slept with uh, among the hundreds I guess Um but, you know, he had a connection to it, and so he, he wants to get to know her anyway. Uh, but then we get a really nice montage of them getting to know each other and developing a bond. Thank you for writing that joke into the notes, Hugo. <laughs> I will leave now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they, they go through a montage, and, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a montage. You know, it's not... Uh, it's a great soundtrack over the top of it, it is with really Louis good, Armstrong. Good music with Louis there, and uh, it was that was one of his last uh, recordings he ever did before he died about a year later. So yeah, yeah. and he did it in one take apparently. It's not old one the take most... Louis. That's what they called him. <laughs> Definitely not <laughs> Satchmo. <laughs> it's not necessarily the most elegant way to do romance in films, but. I feel like for 1969 standards and considering it was a Bond movie, they managed to, to sort of do, they do really give you the idea, oh, these people are really into each other at, at this point, even well, if, you know, they could have shown a bit more. And there's something to be yeah. said for montages being a uh, film technique that mm-hmm. uh, viewers know that, oh, this is a montage and it shows them talking all the time, that means they're falling in love. So they don't yep. actually have to... Sh- it, you know, spell it out for you because we've seen movies and we know that that's what this sequence means. <laughs> it's an economic way to do it, for yeah. sure. Uh, so, eventually, Bond follows Draco's information and breaks into the office of a lawyer who has some ties with Blofeld. Uh, 
Hugo thinks this is a really cool scene. What 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 does he like about this scene, Hugo? I I think the the way that he sneaks into the office is so like it's not there's no brute force involved. It's like a very clever way. He knew when he was going to be on a lunch break and he had a guy with him that's going to pass him this weird machinery that he's going to use to copy all his documents and then he just walk casually walks out right when he was about to come back. And some might say also, almost too casually considering he's holding a Playboy pin up as he's walking out of the office. Yeah, and still like, and still folding it up with like so, boobs hanging out so, everywhere. Like, it's so smooth and I feel like, you know, it it it, give, it gives me a really satisfying feeling that you get when in a heist movie, you know, they pull off a part of the heist so perfectly and nobody notices. Nobody like, notices. It's, very, it's yeah. a very satisfying scene to watch. Yeah, well, especially I, I, in comparison to a lot of other Bond movies where, like, every yeah. time... Like, sometimes in Bond movies, I start to think, you know, Bond's really not this that good at, at being a spy. <laughs> he gets caught He gets lot. caught all the time. Also, also he o- almost always uses his real name. He introduces or at least himself. The, the slightest variation of his real name. Like, like James, like, Slog or whatever, right? <laughs> You're like... Hi, I'm James Band. <laughs> yeah. Also that, scene, also, that I do think that scene is kind of funny in the sense that, like, the whole reason that it works is because the, the lawyer's office just so coincidentally happens to be right next to the construction site that is being manned by Draco's men. So they can use a crane to, they can use a crane to basically lift a BMW through the window to be able to unlock this safe. Now, if you want to justify it and make it more justifiable in your head, maybe Draco bought the construction site. Mm-hmm. So they could but do also, this like, heist. <laughs> the fact Draco <laughs> had the information, so he was definitely already, you know, sort of monitoring this person because he was trying to get to Blofeld. Because for him, he was the competition, and he wanted to take him out. <coughs> that yeah, explanation the, I like better. The uh, the crane yeah. swinging like this the supercomputer slash hacking device, you know, into <laughs> yeah. like it. The, the crane slams into the side of the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It would have absolutely destroyed the building. Oh, but it's so sure. Fine. But that's, that's, yeah. I, I do really enjoy the scene, and it, and it is really yeah. cool. And this is one of those examples of a uh, a Bond gadget mm-hmm. doing cool things in a way yeah. that you know kind of makes you know can make sense without being campy. So I, I do really like that uh, as well. He finds out that Blofeld is trying to claim the title of Count Balthazar de Blochamp, so he goes undercover as Sir Hilary Bray, the genealogist that was corresponding with him at his research center in the Swiss Alps. Uh, this setting is really cool. The Swiss Alps, like we talked yep. about it earlier, the Swiss Alps, absolutely flawless, perfect setting for a Bond movie uh, and basically sets up the future of all Bond movies. This is the, the gold standard. <laughs> yeah. it, it's so crazy that this is a real place that they managed to find and that it looks so perfect for what they're going for in the movie. It's really cool that it can be, you know, basically only accessed by helicopters too, right? Because, like, it sets yep. up so many cool shots for the cinematography in the movie too. But uh, here is where, where he goes undercover is Hillary Bray. I, this is where I, where I wanted to, again, mention how silly this disguise looks. Because it basically yeah. looks like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got a big – and not like the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock Holmes, like, you know, like how you imagined Sherlock Holmes before the Sherlock mm-hmm. TV show. <laughs> yeah. Big brown also, coat. An interesting side note for this little bit is that uh, the voice he he gets his voice dubbed over throughout this whole sequence when he is Sir Hilary Bray, and the person doing the dubbing is the guy who played the actual Q 
character of Sir Hillary Bray that we just saw in the scene right before. And the whole reason they did <laughs> it that way. That. that was really funny. Yeah, the whole reason they did it that way was because they wanted Lazenby to do an impression of the guy, and apparently the director was like, no, that's not good enough. Let's just have that guy do the voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. That's oh, really yeah. funny. <laughs> but, like, I kind of like these guys in the way, because, like, it, it takes, it's kind of funny that you get Bond, who's supposed to be, like, the coolest guy ever, and you put him in this, like, really, turn him into this really nerdy, boring dude who can talk about genealogy for like four hours like yeah. it's strange and he but does it, talk it, about it, it for four hours because it, he talks really about really it funny with yeah. blofeld's angels of death mm-hmm. uh which are a group of beautiful girls that blofeld is programming to be his perfect killers uh he will have them distribute his virus whenever uh he tells them to through hypnotherapy uh yep so Bond investigates this uh, whole situation and, of course, sleeps with a few of the girls. <laughs> two of them. Yeah, and this is what, are, what I what was are referring... Two? Yeah, he... This is what I was referring to before, where it feels like he sleeps with the girls because Bond sleeps with girls and it has to be part of the movie, but it doesn't really completely fit into this movie. It kind of devalues, like, the relationship building that they've been doing with Tracy and the fact that the movie is... Oh, this is the movie where Bond falls in love the first time but he's still sleeping around with these two other girls it feels like i don't know they threw that in just almost because they had to because that's the character but it i I don't think it really works in this movie at all to your point hugo it's not also why are they into him because he's playing the most boring guy in the world as we (laughs) said it's because he's a a model (laughs) maybe i suppose (laughs) he's the very model of a modern james bond well, I was going to say, to your point, Hugo, it's not even like they uh, have him sleep with these girls because they are crucial to furthering the plot or him getting more information or whatever. It's literally just like, here are two girls that are hot. I'm going to sleep yeah. with them. <laughs> I mean, so technically, he does get some information uh, from them because he finds out more about what's going on. And, you know, there's that scene where he's present when one of them is getting hypnotized, but we don't really i don't think we really need to have him sleep with them like we just could have had a scene where maybe one of them comes on to him and sneaks into his room but he doesn't actually sleep with them but then the hypnotism starts and that's how he learns that there's something going on there or something like that and i don't know the, the fact that he sleeps with them feels like sort of a something that they had to have in the movie just because it's bond and it's the 60s and it does kind of cheapen the relationship yeah. that he is has been building with Tracy Mm-hmm. A little bit. However, that, and by little however, bit, that a is <laughs> that is a cool scene, though, where he's uh, with the girl as the hypnotizing is going on because it gives you that late 60s, like, hypnotic oh, yeah. colors, you know, acid trip like, effect. <laughs> the way they visualize the idea of the hypnotizing is awesome. Like, I think it's yeah. really cool. Like, this idea that, oh, as soon as that happens, she just shuts off and she's listening and he realizes that something's going on because it doesn't have an effect on him yet. Yeah, so that's really good. Uh, Bond investigates and tries to trick Blofeld into leaving Switzerland so he can be arrested, but eventually Blofeld discovers Bond and (coughs) captures him, and in classic 007 film fashion, explains his entire plan to him. (laughs) Although I I did think it was really funny. He starts to explain the plan, but then Bond asks him, like, but what about this? And then he's like, well, that's going to be my little secret. And it's like, okay, Blofeld, you just... 
went off <laughs> for like five minutes explaining everything. You're like, oh, but this this is a bridge too far, Bob. There's I'm that not sharing little that. nugget of information that I'm not going <laughs> to oh, Only but to uh, go, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> Blofeld has developed a virus that can target entire strains of crops or livestock and will threaten the UN, demanding amnesty and the recognition of the aristocratic title that he is uh, going for. Which, to me, that seems a little silly. Like, if you yeah. once you've like, the, is the title really worth anything when you've already made an enemy of the entire planet? I think what <laughs> I think there's a moment where they say um, the title is his pension plan or whatever because it's like um, it's good it's it comes with land and money, but I don't think it doesn't seem to me that Blofeld really needs. Yeah, he's already plan. got he seems, a, a, he seems a to be doing all right. Lair, dude, just chill <laughs> yeah. out here, man. <laughs> Yeah. Also, also, it makes it seem like when you're in that lifestyle, you can just choose to retire. Sure. Yeah. yeah I'll just yeah. like yeah. I'll just. Get I'm done my being a super criminal. House. <laughs> yeah. I'm done, Bond. I'm going off to you know, sleep with my harem of angels of death. I'm gonna go play golf. I mean, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but Bond. Yeah, it's it's a far fetched plan, but it's a fun plan. I feel like yeah. regardless of how kind of stupid it is and over the top it is it's still a fun bond villain plan like it's agreed it, it and it's you a, know it's a semi plausible concept yes. you know <laughs> yeah, yeah it's uh, not as crazy as some others not as crazy as some of the other ones and some of them are really crazy so. oh yeah uh bond manages to escape and we get the most well-known set piece of the film the ski chase uh, which leads into Bond meeting Tracy again and continues into a car chase through the Alps. Uh, this is the first of many ski chases in Bond history. Uh, I, don't, this, I don't know how that became such a staple. I don't know, maybe Roger Moore saw Lazenby do this, and he's like, I want to do that, but like four more times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, it's I, iconic. It, it was probably just because this one was so good. Like, I mean, I don't know how you guys felt, but I love this sequence. I, I think it's awesome. I think the way that it's shot and edited together, I think, is awesome. That they have the whole. There's one scene that I really love where they. It was obviously shot from a helicopter because it, it shows four skiers going down like on top of the crest of the mountain. Yeah, like it's really so cool. cool. Oh, that's a beautiful yeah. show. Yeah, and even yeah. even though the the dummies that they drop off the cliff sides. <laughs> like as far as as far as dummies go, they, 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 I mean, obviously you know they're dummies, but like it's yeah, could have it, been worse. Could have been terrible. much worse. It, you don't like, see the straw flying out as they're yeah, dropping. exactly. <laughs> like that guy me, fell for like a minute and a half. <laughs> oh yeah, for me that, but it gives you an idea of how high they really are. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. Uh, it overall, I think the scene is really good. Um, I do feel like everything that they shot on location is so much better than whenever they cut where they want to actually show the actors' faces and it's very clearly them shot against the background. Yeah. Um, but regardless of that, I think the whole sequence is really cool because I like, I, I especially like how it escalates because it begins with him, you know, stuck in that place where he's trying to escape. Then he manages to get out of the place and the way he does it is really creative. He climbs over the place and then he steals some skis and he, then he starts skiing down and then he falls off the skis. And then, you know, he gets, he finally manages to get to the, to the little village down and he meets her again, which is kind of a weird reveal of the movie. And, and then she becomes the one who's in charge of the chase. Yeah. Because they go to her car and she's the driver. And this is another moment where 
you know, we get a lot of Tracy being really capable and, and, and awesome. And she, she kicks ass in this movie. She really much. does. And the, the, yeah. the car chase is really cool too, right? And, yeah, and it's, the car and chase it's another, is really good. So apparently the car chase was actually, like that's not shot with them driving against a green screen. That's them shooting mm. in that actual environment. Like they actually did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which is really so, expensive. So cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it pays off. Like, you know, the practical, like, oh, during the ski chase, there's some uh, close-up moments where they, yep. they do a, a close-up on, like, Blofeld, there's a close-up on him. And it's very clearly done on a green screen. But, yep. uh, so, like, when you see the car chase and you can tell that it's not, it's not mm-hmm. being done in, in a, you know, a warehouse, that's yeah. really cool, you know, that, yeah. they, that they went all out with those, with that car chase. Um, and as far as the stuff with Tracy, uh, because she's so capable and they've done such a good job of showing how capable she is, it really makes sense why she is a person that Bond would fully fall for, yeah. uh, because she, she can keep up with him on, mm-hmm. on this level. And, you know, so it, it makes her, it makes their love story make that much more sense. And I also yeah. really like that they bring back this idea that she's an expert driver, just like Bond. Because at the beginning of the film, the first time she shows up is when they are racing through the, you know, the hills of, I think it was Corsica at the time. And which is a scene that we'll see in a few other Bond movies. I think there's one in GoldenEye. Um, there's one mm-hmm. even in, 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 I mean, there's references to it in one of Craig's movies. Like, it, it, it's a famous kind of iconic Bond thing that he meets somebody else and he races them through the hills. And the fact that they plant that idea and then they reuse it here is, is really fun for me. So, uh, Bond and Tracy confessing their love and getting engaged. Uh, how do you feel about that? Does it, does it feel premature? I mean, I, I know I already stated how I kind of feel about it, that, like, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they are getting in- in any movie like this, when they get engaged and they've known each other a collective, you know, three weeks, yeah, that feels a, a bit quick, but, like, in terms of reality. But does it feel earned in terms of the narrative of the movie? I think it does overall, because it's still, you know, there's a lot a lot of 60s romance movies that the, the escalation of the romance is a little quick and it feels a little jarring maybe to a modern uh, perception, but I think the facade of, of, of film was something that people accepted more at the time and now we want everything to be a little more realistic. Um, again, it, there's always that little blemish of the fact that Bond has slept around with other women in the meantime, but um, I, I don't mind. I think their relationship is strong. I think they have chemistry on screen despite the fact that maybe they didn't like each other apparently, but um, <laughs> it, it kind of works for me. And it, it's also like... I like the quirky scene where Bond is like, oh, but now I'm not going to be promiscuous. I'm going to wait until marriage. And they obviously don't. Yeah. It's a fun gag yeah. because of who Bond is and the fact that they've already slept with together. So, I, I like it. I, I don't think it feels unearned. I think that mm. they they had already done enough in that movie to point out the fact that Tracy is very different from every other woman that we've seen in these movies so far, mm-hmm. right? They they. Like I mentioned before, you know, they also done a very good job about showing that they are kind of, they're two people who are very alike in the sense that they are both broken people, right? Mm-hmm. And and they they don't necessarily like fix each other's holes, but they at least can see each other in the other, right? And I mm-hmm. think that for those reasons, I don't feel like it feels unearned. Yeah, it's a little quick, but 
I mean, it's a movie, right? Like you it's can't, a movie. You, <laughs> you can't you can't show you know a whole gigantic courtship like that. And I, I do I like the way that. that it's actually shot too. Like it's really um, it's kind of old timey in the sense that they do like the you know I forget the word for it, but it's basically like when they smudge the Vaseline on it a little bit on the lens, right? And it's like yeah. kind of gives it the the fog of romance or whatever. And I, I don't mind that. I, I like it. I think it gives a nice little touch to the scene. Okay, well, so back in London, Bond is informed that the UN has chosen to give in to Blofeld's de- demands, so he decides to go rogue and attack Blofeld's compound with the help of Draco. Uh, this assault is the second big set piece of the film. How do you, how do you feel about that? I love I the helicopter it. shots. The helicopter Sorry. shots are awesome. Uh, I don't know, like, it, it feels really modern, like, in a way that a lot of the action in the other Bond movies of the 60s I don't think does. Like the fact that they assault this place, they land with the helicopters and then it moves into this fight through the compound. And, and there's a lot of like the whenever it gets, um, you know, where they're fighting hand to hand, it always seems pretty realistic. The editing is frenetic in a way that feels modern. I think it really holds up as a sequence. I, I agree with that. I think that uh, my favorite part about it is honestly the helicopters as they're flying in Draco's. Mm-hmm. You know, convincing them that, like, no, we're on a mercy mission. It, it yeah. had a very Han Solo quality <laughs> to it. <laughs> and uh, I, so I, I really enjoyed that moment. And then uh, it pays off with an excellent fight scene. And then the blowing up of Peace Gloria is <laughs> impressive because uh, obviously that's not, they didn't actually blow up the restaurant that they were shooting in. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> so the, very effective uh, effects there. <laughs> Uh, I'm assuming. I'm assuming by miniatures. I don't know how. Yeah, it's got to be miniatures. Do that. But they were yeah. fantastic miniatures. Great. Fantastic yeah. miniatures, and it's it tough. Uh, explosions, and this is something that you know anyone who considers himself even remotely a film buff is aware of. Explosions and fire in miniatures are really tough to do, especially mm-hmm. uh, in purely practical ways like they were doing it at this time, because uh, fire doesn't move the same way on a small scale yeah. as it does on a large scale. You can't mm. change the size of fire. You know, you know what I mean? So. You can't scale yeah, it down. You can't easily. scale it down to a very tiny... Like, today... <laughs> I mean, today they wouldn't use a miniature at all, but even if in the few films that they do use miniatures, they enhance it with CGI, Correct. so it, it looks yeah. more real. But So th- this is a very impressive practical effect that they're doing there. Uh, yep. uh, Bond and Blofeld have their final showdown in a bobsled, which I yep. think is uh, amusing. Yep. It was, a, it's a little silly, but also fun so. it's the it's, right it's, amount of silliness for me yeah. for a bond movie like like how do you end up in this situation like you know unbelievable that they would do it but then also like a really cool and visceral way to kill blofeld as he gets his head stuck in a tree branch like and, and like like you know makes yep. a, a little snapping sound indicating his neck is broken <laughs> And you're like, oh, damn, there goes Blofeld, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we never have to worry about him again. Oh, wait, next movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, later in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too, yeah. Uh, Bond and Tracy get married and then drive away in his Aston Martin, which is a lovely scene uh, when he says, no need to go too fast, we have all the time in the world. But then, of course, Blofeld is not dead. Uh, he has uh, teamed up with uh, Frau Bluka, or whatever her name is. No. <laughs> In the, in the, 
I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, we didn't mention, but, but she <laughs> basically this woman is one of the people who were at his service or something. Yeah, one of his henchmen. Frablook is good enough. Yeah, uh, and uh, <laughs> she and Blo- is driving a car, and uh, they do a drive-by shooting of Bond and Tracy in in the Aston Martin, and uh, you know Bond's like, "Gosh darn it, that Blofeld, he's alive!" Oh, he gets into his car, uh, and is like, "Oh." Oh, damn. <laughs> Tracy's yeah. been shot in the face. <laughs> yeah, so and it turns out that she's dead, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, I was, when I first saw this movie, I was really shocked by that. Like, yeah. I obviously, I knew from later movies that Bond was not still married, but I, I guess I had always assumed that uh, it was something that happened off screen. Like, they just didn't bring the actress back. But then when mm-hmm. I first saw this movie, I'm like, oh, no, they, <laughs> they sure are getting killed. No coming it's back a- from that. For for Bond fans who I can't even imagine what that must have felt like in the theaters when you're first seeing that movie for the first time, because again you got to remember at that point they didn't know what Bond was going to be after that right so in they it's the first movie where they would have seen Bond actually fall in love for real with you know another person and get married and you you see their relationship and then gone yeah right? like in an instant as quick almost like. Quicker than it came, and it came really quick. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it's. I mean, it's. I it's a devastating really ending for a character that they did a really yeah. good job building up, you know, for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And I really like Lazenby's performance here. Honestly, like, um, you know, the critics at the time didn't like him, but I think in this ending, he he does have the humanity that you need to to play this scene. And, you know, this idea of this character who is fundamentally broken has never cared about anyone because he's just all about her majesty's secret service and the one time that he you know becomes vulnerable and falls in love his sort of his life catches up to him and you know she gets killed you almost would think that this this would be the sort of story that they would have told before he became a womanizer almost almost Uh, yeah yeah there um when they were shooting that scene I read that basically they he had originally filmed that scene actually tearing up and actually crying because he doesn't really in the movie he he mm. you can tell he's kind of choked up but he doesn't you don't see any tears or anything mm-hmm. like that but they had filmed it that way to begin with um and basically the reason they decided not to do that was cuz the director said James Bond doesn't cry yeah and then sure. and and I look at it now and I'm like what a dumb decision like yep if yeah. literally, if there were any point in Bond's life where you would want him to cry, it would be after his wife gets murdered the minute they get married. Like, yeah. you know, uh, and and uh, and I think they remedy that decision, you know, whatever thirty, forty years later with Daniel Craig in in Casino Royale, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it's such a wasted opportunity. I feel. I feel like it would have been better if we did see him cry in that moment. And I think another thing I'll add to this scene, you know, they um, at the end, you know, they they kind of. Uh, the music is very soft and obviously sad and somber. It's the we it's the we have all the time in the world song, but instrumental version. And it it peters out with the movie. the The credits start to roll, and it's still that same soft music. And it holds it for like five seconds, and then all of a sudden yeah. it goes plada plada plada. And I'm like, what are you doing, okay, man? Yeah, I agree. From a filmmaking perspective, like you just ruined like, the tone chill. that you set up. Like, can yeah. you slow down for like yeah. five minutes and then you do the Bond theme? No, they're just yeah. gonna do that. But they went well, right I, like, in. I really like it's this moment. moment. I want to, yeah, I want to give you the quote here, Hugo. Right. That uh, yeah. 
Bond takes her into his arms after you know after she's been shot and says, "It's all right. She's just having a rest. There's no hurry. You see, we have all the time in the world." And that's like, that's like a really like broken thing to mm-hmm. say. Like 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 yeah. his his mind has snapped here. Uh, yeah, very and powerful. It's a final line of the movie, and then it just the camera just moves over, and we see the bullet hole through the windshield and. That's it. That's the end of the movie, and the credits start yep. playing. And then I agree then, with you, Matt. Like we only get those five seconds of somber music, and then the Bond theme just shows up, and it's like, ah, it's a little off. But you know, at the time, credit sequences weren't that long, so I guess they wanted to have the move, the or the whole song for the end of the movie. But still, yeah. It's, but it's like. It's like we didn't need the reminder that this is a Bond movie. We know yeah, we that. get it. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, and it, keep, it would have been much tone. more. It would have been much more poignant if they had uh, kept that tone all the way through the end. There, yeah. Can you imagine like walking out of the theater with that sad, you know, ending instead of the you know swing in Bond? Cool, James Bond is coming back. See you in another year. <laughs> yeah, but still, I I think the ending is one of the darkest ending for any Bond movie. Yeah, um, for sure. It's Bef- up there. Definitely, definitely. It's before. up there. I, okay, I haven't seen License to Kill, and I hear that one's pretty dark. I don't know how the ending is, but still, definitely before the Craig era, this is not what Bond movies usually were. Um, and and then they uh, weren't I, again. For, yeah, and then they weren't again for a long time. while. <laughs> yeah. And I like how it breaks from tradition, because I think it completes this idea of the movie, which is to make James Bond a human being. Like, to to put him through the suffering that he goes through at the end of the movie sort of brings him back to maybe the old bond. Cause he would revert back to his old life. Cause he doesn't want to feel anything anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a really poignant uh, ending. And uh, I, I really like the ending. I, I think, yeah, I, I didn't, I wasn't even necessarily expecting it. Cause I, I thought the movie, I, I mean, I didn't know if, I don't know if the movie could have been a happily ever after. Cause it's just not what this character gets. But, it, I don't know, I, the ending did catch me by surprise, and I, I, I really appreciated that. Um, so here, we'll jump into our final discussion. Yep. Uh, the film is often considered to be a more serious take on Bond. I think we've made that abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's more faithful to the novels and less fantastical than some of the previous, and certainly more so than the following entries, yep. which <laughs> do get pretty silly at times. Uh in contrast to the rest of the series, it almost feels like a deconstruction of the character and an anticipation of what Craig's Bond would eventually be. Uh, obviously, you know, this note, these notes were written by Hugo, and I, I took over. So those were Hugo's words. There you go. <laughs> uh, do I agree? Yeah, I mean, this this movie, I think, more so than... More, I don't want to necessarily want to say that it sets up Daniel Craig so much as I think it sets up Timothy Dalton. And mm-hmm. then Timothy Dalton sets up Daniel Craig. Yes. Uh because I, I do think you need that step in between in terms of the seriousness uh, to kind of find mm-hmm. uh, that sweet spot. And so I, 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 but in general, yeah, obviously it's there's a through line uh, between this performance, George Lazenby, to Timothy Dalton, to Daniel Craig, and uh, in, thematically, and I think you can really see that. What do you think, Matt? I think it does a nice job of setting up, not necessarily setting up any one particular actor or one particular um, portrayal, but it does a great job of setting the stage for it's okay if we have a more humanistic, more vulnerable James Bond on screen, right? And mm-hmm. and I think they didn't necessarily know it at the time, but obviously for modern audiences these days, that is really what 
I think makes the Daniel Craig era work is that it is a much more human James Bond than we've had in the past. And I think modern audiences generally want that. Yeah. For sure. And it, it's honestly the you, reason do you have anything why, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's honestly the reason why the later Brosnan movies just didn't really find uh, the, any appreciation from... I don't think anyone thinks those movies are fantastic because it's just like, it feels like at that point it's so dated that that would still be the formula and it just doesn't work. Um, yeah. Well, so last one of our last questions here. Uh, we talked a lot about some of the dated features of Bond movies, the traditional Bond elements, uh, yep. which are still in this film. Uh, does it ruin it for you? Does it ruin any of it for you? Uh, or are the ways in which it subverts the character and the formula of the previous movies, uh, are those enough to overcome those more dated elements? Yeah, for me, it is overall a movie that I really like, and I, I think it's a an extremely strong entry in the series, especially for the 60s. Um, I sort of forgive the fact, again, the sleeping with the other girls is just, just does not fit this movie at all for me. It just feels completely out of place, but I understand where it comes from, where it's just like maybe a producer decision or maybe just something that they felt that they couldn't not do. Um, but you know, it does take something away from the movie overall for me. I, I still really like it. I agree, especially with him sleeping with the, the two girls at the at the uh, uh, eagle's nest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if they had just like tempted him with it, yeah, I think that would have been much more uh, mm -hmm. meaningful. Especially since the through line of the movie is supposed to be that Bond has, is falling in love with Tracy, and if they had given him this smorgasbord of women to choose from in the in this in this place which in any other situation bond would be all about right he'd be flirting with everybody and you know being all suave and debonair uh if they had done shown him that you know option and then had him still choose to be faithful to tracy uh i think that would have been better and for me that that is it does take away from the movie like, it takes away from what the movie could have been for me. It could have been yeah. that much better. Yeah. I think it's a case of, like, multiple things can be true at once, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. there there are definitely the problematic elements, which we talked about all through the this episode, I think. But I do think that despite that, it is still one of the best Bond movies, I, I guess. Yeah. I don't really have anything else to say other than that. I just think that you can... We can acknowledge the parts that are kind of sucky while also acknowledging yeah. that even in spite of that, like this is still one of the best movies. And you're right, Jeff, maybe if some of those elements weren't there, maybe it would be the best, you know, in the series. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is again, kind of what our last question here is, is where does it stand in within the series in terms of its importance? And do we consider it one of the best entries? I think we all kind of agree. And we've kind of said throughout here that we do think it's one of the best entries in the franchise. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, I, like it, it really is unfortunate, in my opinion, that the franchise took the turn it did after this movie. Obviously, I like where it has come back around to, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, I, yeah, I feel like I feel like if this movie was more financially successful, um, it could have made the franchise better going forward. Um, but I definitely l think it's an anticipation of my favorite ones that would come later, and 
I think especially given it was made in 1969 this is a really impressive film to have in this series and yeah it's still like it's top five for me so yep well so now we are into the uh the part of the show where we rank our film to remember against all the other films we've remembered uh so <laughs> i remember all of this because josh isn't here and josh also did not give us his rating ahead of time so i'm sure he will just uh you know correct us next week on how wrong we are uh in this episode uh, but what, do we give matt powers and josh is just gonna have to no, deal with it i think or? i think we're gonna hear what matt's opinion is on where he would put it in our list uh, right. But you and I are just going to average where we're at for now, and if we need to correct okay. that next week, we'll move it next week. I'm I'm uh, a non-voting member of the board here. I only get like the <laughs> common stock shares. I don't get those. We you grant know, fancy you a seat on the council, stock. but we not do not give you the rank of master. Oh man, I, I better go. I better go murder some younglings now. It's preposterous. <laughs> Our current um, top ten is the thing at number ten. Mulholland Drive at number nine. Lawrence of Arabia at number eight, The Departed at number seven, Boogie Nights at number six, Shaun of the Dead at number five, Paddington 2 at number four, The Silence of the Lambs at number three, Doctor Strange Love number two, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, still number one with a bullet. Yep. So, uh, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think here? We'll start with Hugo. Hugo, where would you put it? I think I would put it more or less exactly where I ranked the last movie we did, so I think I would put it at around number 21. So, no, wait, 22, just below Ansandi, above Rudy, below Jackie Brown, Ansandi, above Rudy, above 127. So we kind of, we kind of take uh, uh, approaches here where we, we look for the movie that we feel is most egregiously overranked, personally, yep, that, and then we, pretty like, much how where, it <laughs> where do we put it in relation to that movie? So yeah, you you gotta have Hugo kind of goes to Rudy. <laughs> he goes to yeah. Rudy every time. He's like, okay, I like it better than Rudy. It goes above Rudy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so Hugo says, "Honor, Majesty, Secret Service" would be at uh, at twenty two. Yep. Uh, Matt, where would you put it? Honestly, that's kind of how I had to look at these too. I there are a lot of movies on this list that unfortunately I have not watched. I have not been a uh, faithful listener of the podcast in a sense and watched along kick with you out, guys kick him out of the call just so, <laughs> get out um, get out <laughs> i'm sorry um but yeah no as far as the ones that i have seen i took the same approach that you just described for hugo which therefore would have me putting it at number 18 under network and ahead of uh well i haven't seen sound of metal or few of the others rudy is the next one i've seen so ahead of rudy behind network and Matt, of course, thinks Network is criminally underranked on our ranking system. Uh, 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 criminally is a strong word, but uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I would put this, I, I go to the one that I think, is, there's, there's a line in our list that I'm like, okay, everything below this, it can be, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely better than this. And that line for me was Matrix Reloaded at 29. I do think it's better than the Matrix Reloaded. So uh, that nothing, means I put it better at than the Matrix Reloaded. Twenty nine. Put it out there. So. Uh, just behind the trial of the Chicago Seven. I was gonna uh, say so, you just stabbed Hugo in the gut there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Hugo's got a lot of stab week. wounds after. <laughs> to be honest, like yeah. this this podcast might as well be called uh, the Matrix Reloaded sucks. And <laughs> I'm the one of the five people in the world who loves the Matrix Reloaded. What's so, funny is yeah. when we did our episode on the Matrix, like Josh and I both like Matrix Reloaded. Uh, that's true we just don't think it's you know 
fantastic. But I love it. But I love that Hugo movie. Hugo loves so, yeah. it. It is what it is. So uh, our so average would be between 22 and 29, correct? Yes. So before we know what Josh thinks, right now it would go at number 25. So above Chef and below Batman Mask of the Phantasm. So that's where we're going to put that for now, uh, is yep. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, number 25. Yes. Uh, we don't know what we're watching next week, unfortunately. No. Uh, well, so Josh what... is enjoying a cool vacation. So Correct. We, we, you know, we, fully, we fully support that, and uh, I don't think anyone else is going to hold that against him. So what yep. I would suggest... So next uh, week is a surprise movie, maybe, or we can come up with something together. Well, and what I would suggest... <laughs> Uh, for those mm-hmm. of you who are listening and watching, uh, go ahead and follow at RTF underscore pod on Twitter, where we can announce what the next movie will be. And uh, then you can you can watch it and join us uh, for the next episode. Hugo, where can people find you on the uh, internet? You can find me at Hugo underscore Pinai on Twitter, and you can find my profile, Hugo Pinai, on Letterboxd. And our guest, wonderful guest. Thank you again, Matt, uh, for coming on the show. Obviously, we've, we've picked a couple of times for you to come on that you are really passionate about Bond and you're really passionate about uh, David Lean. So, you know, good fit. Again, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people find you on the Internet? Yeah, next time you'll have to have me on for something I really don't give a crap about, and we'll see how good of a host I am at that point. <laughs> really bad. That cool. <laughs> uh, Twitter would be at Matthew E. Curran, and Letterboxd is M.E. Curran. Like me, Curran. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at GoodGameGrizz and on Twitch at GoodGameGrizz and uh, on Letterboxd at GoodGameGrizz. <laughs> Got that, that marketing on point. Uh, yeah. uh, so join us again next week for whatever we're going to talk about. It's been an absolute uh, blast doing this show with you guys here today, and we hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're listening or watching, please follow and subscribe. And, uh, and share our videos and podcasts with your friends and family uh, who also like movies because we'd, we'd love to get more people in the comments and sharing their thoughts on all our crazy lists. Uh, so Try to make it so time. it's not just me in the comments on the YouTube videos. <laughs> hey, that's not fair. TJ is in there sometimes and, and Christian right. jumps in every once in a while. Shout out yeah. to those guys. <laughs> but uh, again, thanks for, thanks for watching and listening and just have the best week of your life. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye.